Welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated to Uli Nishmat, Rivka Bat Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Mai, and Rina D, our full sponsors for the year, Naomi Nitzi Hallander, Complete Refuel for All Holim, Michelle and Gary Friedman, in memory of Hanam Alcha Bas David, and Refuel Shlema for Rachel Merrill, Hinda Bas, and Miriam Rivka, our half year sponsor anonymously for Refuel Shlema from Nuchan Tova Bat Shoshana Chaya Devora, and Anonymously, our Spotify sponsor, Rafu Shlema, for all those injured in Eretz Yisrael, and Rafu Shlema for Yedidia Chaim and Avivar of Bechaya, Brachavik Alvas Rachel Kita, Tilabat Chaya Tova, Shimon Ben Elka, Shalman Chaya Saran, Shadokham for all those in need. We we pick up where we left off last week. The Jews are are not in a great place. We have this guy Micha who builds a pestel at his mother's instruction after he. Uh, steals the money from her and then feels guilty and returns it. This is the person that we have, Micha. And then Micha builds this uh, this little base amigdash, this little mishkan. And the nice part is that it's, it funds itself because it's an inn. And people come and go. And while they're there, perhaps they worship. And even if not, they have a good hearty meal, drop some money for him and tell people, oh, wow, this is not really nice inn slash whatever else along the way. In Harafrayim. That's Micha. We our story does tell us in the middle, at this time there is no king in the uh, Jewish people. Everybody does whatever they want. Paragudchet begins with exactly the same language. That at the same time that there's no king, Shevet Dan was looking for their piece of land that they could live in because they had not successfully found a piece of land to live in. Question that we had last week, and same question that we'll have to deal with again today, is when did this happen? So Rashi says it happens at the start of Shoftim. Why? So he says, first off, there was no Yoshua, there was no Shoft, there was no, there was not a Snail and Knaz. There's a little bit of a vacuum in there where there is no leader. Oh, ain't Malach Bissel, number one. Number two, some of the things, the fact that there are con- there's conquest of land, this is, if the end of the Sefer is many, 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 many years later, it seems strange that Don all of a sudden wakes up after 300 years or so and says, wait, you know what? We don't have any land in Israel. That doesn't make any sense. Let's go for it now. Where were they for the last 300 years? It doesn't work. And that's the motivation behind Rashi's Pshat. But Dax says, no, it's after Shimshon. Why? I think there's two reasons. First off, sequentially, Ein Muktamuchar Bator is a com- is a complicated principle to employ. Why do you have to say that the text is not in order? When you write a book, generally, you start from the beginning, you have a middle, and you have an end. That is how you pass English, and that is what our teachers teach us in our English class. Beginning, middle, end. So you wouldn't take the end and put it at the beginning, and you wouldn't take the beginning and put it at the end. So the Radak says if we keep the story sequentially, we feel more comfortable with how it goes. The Malbim has an interesting take on it. I, I did look through the Malbim, and it's not clear 100% where the Malbim's take is on the story. Is he in the camp of Rashi, or is he in the camp of Radak? But he does say make a comment in our Pasuk that perhaps should give us a sense of how to deflect Rashi's argument. He says the following, 
they had actually successfully taken their piece of land. But the Kanani came back and reconquered it. And therefore, they're looking for a place to live. Because the place that they had lived in before was not available, it had been retaken. And because they had no place to live, they had to look. What the Malbim is doing for us is, he's saying that you could actually knock off Rashi's understanding of and say, I get why Don all of a sudden after 300 years comes out of the woodwork. They did what they had to do. But over the course of 300 years, they lost that piece of land that they had conquered back in the times of Yoshua. And now they say to themselves, what are we going to do? Got to figure this out. So they do figure it out. They say, we got it. We have to conquer more land. Pasuk bet. So what happens? So the B'nai Dan send five people. What is Miktzotam? Says Mitzuda Sion and others. Miktzotam comes from the word Katsin. They send five of their officers, five of their generals, real warriors, Mitzarau Meshta Old, that's the heart of the land of Dan, to spy out the land and Lukhakura to, to delve into it. Now Liragel to Aretz, we had that word together. Yoshua sends two spies, Liragelata Aretz. And we said at the time it's in distinction to what we have in the Torah, Parsha Shlach, where it's they're not going as tourists. What are they trying to do? They're coming as genuine, bona fide spies looking for the weakness in the land, trying to find a place that they could conquer and looking for that weakness, that hole that they can exploit. But the Chaker is also a little bit of a deeper looking. They're trying to understand, does the place suit our needs? So perhaps there's a little bit of Latour and there's a little bit of Liragel. In fact, the Malbim says that there's a dual mission here. Find a place, Liragel. Find a place that you can spy out that we know we will conquer. Yes, find that weakness, exploit it. But also come on behalf of the uh, the, the people of Don and say, you know what our economy is like. You know what most of our people do for a living. So the question will be, is this land that's suitable? Is this land that we could successfully live in or not so much? What happens? So, they come to Har Ephraim, to the house of Micha, and they, and they stay there. Like I said, it's an inn. This is a place not only that you could worship, but it's also a place that you can stay. Lahavdil, Lahavdil. I don't want anybody to think that I'm making an equivalent. But when you go to some of these far-flung places in the world, there's a Chabad house. The Chabad house has two functions, essentially. They'll give you a place to pray, to daven, to learn, perhaps. But they'll also give you a place to eat. And so often... People are like, listen, I, I, I'm on vacation. I'll do what I want to do. I don't need the Chabad place in order to, to daven. It's a minion. It's not a minion. Not my thing. But 
I want to know and I want to make sure that what is there, there's a place that I can get kosher food. Otherwise, it's not vacation. And other people say, I don't care about the food. I'll eat a can of tuna. I'll eat chips for a week. But I want a minion. I want a place that I could dive in. I want a place that I could worship. So the question is, which one is it? The answer is he provides both. They stay there. Hey, my bait Micha. And they're in the house of Micha. And they hear this voice. And the voice is familiar. They recognize the voice of this Levi. Who brought you here? What do you do here? What is your purpose here? Okay. So what is it? What, what exactly is going on here? They recognize the voice of this Levi. So one possibility is, says the Malbim, that he is a Levi. Remember, Levim were spread around the land of Israel. He was a Levi that originally was from Dan. They remembered him. He was a, he was a, uh, a kid that was born there. So they hear his voice and like, ah, oh, we know who you are. You used to live by us. What brings you here? Rabbi Hatton says, maybe there's a different possibility. They listen to him sing and they hear, wait a second. It doesn't sound the same thing. His accent, his uh, his Havara is not the Havara. It's not the accent. It's not the sound of the rest of the people. Uh, sometimes you have one person when they're duchening, let's say, you hear his voice and his voice sticks out. It could stick out because he has a better voice. It could stick out because he has a worse voice. It could stick out because he pronounces a word differently than everybody else. It could be that everybody is talking in Ashkenazis and he's doing Sfaradit. Whatever it is. But that's that's another possibility. And they ask him three questions. Hello, how did you end up from your house here, says the Malbim. What's your job here? And Malachapo is what is your salary? That's that those are the three questions that they ask him. Says Rashi, though, something different. They ask him a lot of interesting probing questions. Lo Mizaro Aren't you from the children of Moshe Rabbeinu? We have the word Altikrav Halom. Moshe is told, don't go there. We have the word hello here. Umisam pe, who put who gave you a mouth? We have Malachapo. Um Umaze Biadecha, what is in your hand? We have the word, uh, we have the Ze. So there's a similarity to the Moshe story. There's a similarity to this story. And that's a story, that's a question that we're gonna have to try to understand. So that's what they ask him. Look, this is what Micha did for me. He gave me this job. He gave me this house. And he's paying me and I'm a Kohen. Okay. So that is what they, uh, what, what he says. He says, listen, I've got a good cushy job here. Life is good. I'm no longer the wandering Levite, but life is settled. Vayomulo. So they say to him, Shall na belokim. Go ask God. Let's inquire of God. Rashi says, Go talk to your God through the trafim, through these um, statues or whatever that are able to divine the future. Will we be successful? So Shalna Belokim is it Belokim or Belohim? Which one is it? Is it God's name and therefore I reading the Psukim have to read it as Elohim? 
Or is it idols, foreign gods? So then I would say Belohim. No, I believe I read it as Elohim, but that could just be as force of habit. Which one is it? We want to know, are we going to be successful? Listen to Pasuk Vav. The Kohen says to them, Go in peace. Hashem is guiding your way that you're going. Right? Your travels are guided by God. It's going to be good. So, interestingly, they say, They ask about God in a word that could be understood one way. His answer, though, is very clearly, Yudke Vavke. Yudke Vavke, the shame Hashem, it can't be that it's Hulin. It can't be that it's idols. So which one is it? What exactly are we supposed to understand from this story? Um, okay. So let's let's start with that question. But also let's ask another question. If it's Avodah Zarah, why do they ask and cry from him? I mean, if they're God-fearing people, they believe in God, why is it that they are that they're asking him about this God. So the Abar Benel offers an answer. He says, It's not that they didn't believe in God. They did believe in God, but they also believed that you could use certain things to find out the future. So they say, we want to know what the future is. We're in a precarious situation. We want to know what are we supposed to do. So they believe in God, but they think that this is going to help them get the answer of God. Malbim says what takes says a little bit different, but not by that much. They thought that this idol somehow brought down the abundance and the spirituality of God onto the Michahain, the Kohen. They thought the message was coming from God. But it came through this intermediary. According to the, the Malvim and the Abar Benel, it seems like they do, in fact, believe in God. And it does seem like they're, they really want to know what God has to say. Rabbi Hatton, though, says, there, it says an interesting point. It says, they answer Beshema, he answers Beshema Hashem this calling. And what does he say? He says, Hashem says it's going to be Matzliach. He says, false Nevi'im tend to be positive. They tell the people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Since people don't want to pay for bad news, you used to pay the Navi, especially a false Navi, you would pay the Navi for a. Give me, right, give me a prognosis. Give me a, uh, I need you to tell me what's going to happen. Read me my fortune. No one's going to go back and say, oh, the fortune teller is terrible. He said, I'm going to have a horrible day. I don't want to pay for that. I don't need someone to, to, to tell me I'm going to have a horrible day. And it costs me money too. So false Navi, and we have this a couple of times in Malachim, where a false Navi comes along and says, you know what? It's going to be, it's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. Even though that's not what Hashem intended. Why is that? Because false Nevi'im tend to give good news. That is one possibility. Not the um, the Das Mikra says something very interesting. It says, The answer is not clear. They say, Will we be successful? So the answer should be, Hashem says, yes. Hashem says, no. 
says, no. He says, well, in front of God, it appears as though you are going on the right path. This is not a promise of good, of, uh, of success. That fortune tellers and those people, the charlatans that make that tell you how you're doing, what do they usually do? They give you an answer that's very vague. I'll give you an, a, a way, I think, of understanding this best. You get a fortune in your uh, Chinese food or in your fortune cookie at the end of your Chinese meal. And often you get these messages that are very esoteric. They're very out there. You could read it this way. You could read it that way. It's not 100% clear. It says that that's Mikra. That's what these people do. They throw you off by giving you something and saying, listen, you know, maybe. Fine. So that's that's what's going on. I do have a note here. I'm not sure who this is from, but it says, shows he's an Avod, an Eved Hashem, and the Pesel is really nothing. The fact that the Kohen answers, no ha Hashem with shame Hashem, tells you that he actually believes in God. And the idol is not really terribly important to him. We're going to see that by the end of the story, he might not be the same young man that he is right now. So the people, what do they do? They continue on their way. And they go up to Laish. Now, if you're not looking at the screen or you're watching, you're listening on Spotify, I'm sorry, you're going to miss this. But the map on the left side of the screen is actually very helpful. They started in Saranesh Ta'ol, and they make a short trip to Harafrayim, which is probably somewhere north of Shiloh. And they're going to look for a place that go all the way up north, well past, well past the uh, the Kinneret, probably even past the mighty city of Chatzor that had been burnt down. And they end up all the way by a city called Laish. Now we're told, this is what we're told about Laish. Yoshevet Labetach. The people are peaceful. They live in security. Kimishpat Sidonim. They're from the people of Sidon. They, they don't do anything to bother anyone at all. They don't need anyone at all. Now, even though they're from the um, even though they are from Sidon, they live far enough away that they are they're not reachable. But they have no treaties, they have no covenants, they have no deals with anyone. They're just a peaceful group of people that are living up, up, up north. So what happens? They come back down to Tzara, the Eshtaol, and Eshtaol. They say, no, what, what happened? What did you find? So Come up with us, Kira. We found land. It is amazing. And you're being lazy. Come on. You got to get moving. We're going to come to a place where the people are secure. There's plenty of land there to live on. God has given it us into our hands. Maybe 
they're saying that because of what they heard from the Kohen in the house of Micha, and everything we need is there. They're fighting a group of people that have no allies. No one will come to their, their rescue. It is the perfect target. I'd written in my Navi from, I don't know, nine, ten years ago, the perfect enemy. But I'm not sure that you can say someone that has no, not a bone to pick with anyone, someone that's just living there peacefully, not bothering anyone, he's not a perfect enemy. It's a perfect target to attack. And that's really what's going on. They, they're attacking this innocent group of people who just want to live there peacefully. Rabbi Alex Israel points out that some of the words that they're using are borrowed from, from Yoshua's mouth. Yoshua and Kalev, the good spies, what do they say? It's a really good land. And then he says, don't be lazy. Capture the land. Isn't that what Yoshua says at the end of his Sefer? He says, come on. You got to do what you got to do. Conquer the land. What's going on here? And the real question that I have is, is it okay to attack these people? They're not doing anything. They're just there. Is that all right? So let's take a look at Rav Rammer. When they wanted, they were able to. These 600 men were able to destroy a full city of Laish. And it is in the far north. Very far away from everybody else. How is it that they actually don't fight for their own land? You've got the Amorim there. Why can't they go for that? So he says, The Amorim had a very strong, a very powerful grip on the land, and they were not easy to, uh, to turn over. And they presented a, a, uh, a threat, a physical threat, a security threat, Problem was that the people didn't care. B'nai Dan said, "What does it matter? We why why should I fight a hard war here in Tzarash Tahol to beat a hard enemy? Let me go find an easier target up north." Says of Remmer, they should they they sound religious. It's the words of Yehoshua. But what they really should have done was they should have said, you know what? Let's take that religious fervor, don't be lazy, and let's rally our troops to what? To conquer our own land. Why are we going somewhere else? What's sad, Ramar continues, is there was no one to help them. At the beginning of Shoftim, when it is that they know they need to continue conquering land, Yehuda says, who wants to help me? And she, he find, who should go first? I'll go first. And Shimon turns to him and says, no, can you help me? Will you be my ally? Of course, my dear brother, nobody wants to help Don. Don, with this sense of helplessness, says, why am I going for a hard win against the Amorim? Let me go up and fight an easier battle in Laish. Continues 
our parak pasuk yod kevachem. When you get there, listen, you're going to come to a place. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to be so happy there. And the place is so wide, so wide and expansive. You have everything you need there. 600 of the best, strongest, most fierce warriors come with their arms on to fight. And they go to Kiryat Yarim. Now it's very close. The map, it's really like just, 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 just a little bit northeast of it. If you're on, if you're in Big Shemesh and you're going to Yerushalayim, you know that Kiryat Yarim, Telstone, Abu Ghosh, is, uh, is not very far. It's maybe when you get to the outskirts of Big Shemesh, or the uh, truth is when you get to the outskirts of Eshtaol, it's less than 10 minutes away by car. So it's not very far. They stop in Kiryat Yarim. And that place is called Machnedan until this very day. Which is behind Kiryat Yarim. Why do they go to Kiryat Yarim? So Mincha Ketana says it's a great staging point for the battle. They now have enough supplies to go to Layish. They're going to go straight up to Layish armed and and fed and supplied for this battle. And they go from they go to Haref, they pass through Harafrayim and they come to Beit Micha. So you can see the mountain range by Shiloh, they're going that way. Interestingly, it does not say Beit Micha, but it says Ad Beit Micha. There is no reason for them to come to the inn because they don't need any of that. But they come and they stop in the area. The, the five spies say to each other, You know, in this place we have an ephod and a trophim and a pestle and a Let's figure out what to do. As soon as David says, what does that mean? Let's figure out how to steal it. We're going to take it. So they come to the house of the Levi in the house of Micha and they ask him, No, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Now you can imagine there's the knock on the door, there's the five spies, the Kohen, the Levi, whatever you want to call him, he opens up the door and he sees the five spies, they're familiar. And behind him, there are 600 men armed to their teeth right behind him at Shemineidan. They take all the stuff. And the Kohen is standing there and looking at these 600 men. So the Kohen says, what are you doing? This is actually called theft. Why are you doing this? They say to him, Be quiet, cover your mouth. You will be our leader and our Kohen. Would you rather be the Kohen for one person, for one family, 
Or would you rather be the Kohen for an entire Shevet in Israel? Basically, what they're really saying to him is, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond? You're the one Kohen in this small pond, which is the house of Micha, or you could be a small fish in a big pond. We're giving you much more, but perhaps even you could be a big fish in a big pond. You're going to be the number one Kohen for a whole Shevet. And the uh, the Kohen feels good about it. He sells out. He says, no problem. I'll take the eight foot. I'll take the Trophim. I'll take the Pesel. He comes to join these people. Any bit of ethical dilemma that is bothering this guy, should I? Should I not? Do I? Am I willing to, to give up and not be Makir Tov to Micha, who was so good and opened my ha- his house to me when I had no job, anything, even a little bit like that, it's thrown out the window. He doesn't care. So what do they do? They leave and they put the children and their and their animals and all their valuables in front of them. Generally, when a person is walking and they have something in front or behind them, you're more concerned with what's behind you. You might keep your wallet in your front pocket because you're nervous someone will come from behind you and pickpocket you. In front of you, you'll see what's going on. I might put my child on my shoulders because I'm nervous that there will be an assault on me from my front. But if... Excuse me. But if I'm, I put the person... If I hold the child in front of me, it means that I'm more concerned with what's behind me. They put everything they have in front of them because they're more nervous. Who from that city is going to come? Who from Harifrayim is going to come and attack them from the behind? They're not worried about a frontal attack from Laish. So what happens? The people from the house of Micha come out screaming. They cling on to him. And they say, why? And turn to What's your problem? What are you crying about? What are you bothering us? He says, You took my gods and my coin. I have nothing else left. Don't leave us alone. Don't bother us. We have some people that are not such good people. They're not such happy people. They're pretty wild and tough people. They might give you a hard time if you carry on. And they might collect the souls and the souls of your house, meaning they'll kill you. Says the Ralbag. What happens? Micha understands, game over. I can't win. So he just goes home. It's not worth fighting. They go on their way. He realizes they're much stronger and he turns around and goes home. They took what Micha made. That the Kohen Ashrayalo and the Kohen that was with him, they come to this quiet, peaceful, tranquil city, 
and they kill them by the sword or the ear and they torch the city. They torch the city. Why do they torch the city? So the uh, the Ralbag who offers the following, he says, it's not for winning the city. They won the city by the sword. But by burning the city, the rest of the neighbors look and say, whoa, don't mess with these Jews. It's not going to end up well for us. That is the opinion of the Ralbag. The Radak says, that uh, they surprised and came in. That's true. They were able to have the element of surprise. They wanted to make sure that they uh, prevented the people from fighting back. How do you prevent them from fighting back? You overwhelm them. With the fire and the swords, they give up hope. Before before we move on to Azachavchet, I just want to point out: it says they took Asherasa, what they made, what Micha made. An interesting point I saw is that the critique is that they knew he made it. They knew this was man-made, not God-made. It's not God. And yet, they didn't destroy it. Instead, they take it and they turn it into idolatry. And that's inexcusable. The ain mat sealed. Nobody can save. And they have no allies. And they build a city there and it's theirs. I Dan. Call the name of the city Dan. Shame Dan Avia. After Dan. Their father, Asher Yulad Yisrael, who was born to Yaakov. We're talking about the original Dan. But Layish is its real name. The, the people of Dan set up the pestle there. And Yonatan, the son of Gershom, the son of Menashe, he and his sons are Kohanim for Shevadan until the time that the land was exiled. When is the land exiled? One possibility is that it lasts and sticks around until destruction of the Bay of uh, either the Northern Kingdom or perhaps even the Southern Kingdom. Um, but a, a more likely answer is the Radak, and that is until the Aron was, when the Aron was exiled from Shiloh, that's where at that point this was still around. Okay, is the Navi sympathetic to anyone in this story? The woman and her son? Not really. It doesn't have any nice things to say about them. The B'nai Dan? Not really. The only people in this entire story that seem to get any um, any bit of sympathy is the people of Laish. They're just good people. They're not bad people. Okay, the, the interesting thing is you see a little bit of a religious schiz- schizophrenia here. On the one hand, they're devoted to you got to conquer the land. And yet, 
they build a house to idolatry to perpetuate in the land. It's once again a disappointment of the era. We're we're wrapping up, but let's just let's just take a look at this and then one more point afterwards. Parshat Pesel Micham and Saref Lushima Muru Shayu Ketali store, the Hasibar Makorman, Yon Kimashatimet Erkam, Kehachan, Lakam Maluiso. This is another one of the steps, but not a good one, on the way to having a king. Le Parshazui Tahain, Vainu Shamayim, Samim Lev, Ankama Mukov, Rabba Mashu, Masio, Hia Uvdash, Lohurmano, Degal, Alaoma, Yuselik Voim, Shmiam, Yuhalgam, Shevet Dan Liroto. They didn't understand. Their mission. Every Shevet had a mission based on their Dagel in the land, in the desert. And each one kind of took a different side. It was, you have Yehuda, you have Ephraim, you have Reuven God. And then what do you have here? You have Dan. But Dan actually leaves that, says Rev. Remmer, rather than embracing Rather than using and saying, I'm from Degel Dan and this is my mission, he goes north and picks another place to lay his flag. Isn't it ironic, though, the people of Laish are the only ones that we're sympathetic to? Gershom, Yonatan ben Gershom ben Minasha. We know Yonatan is a name, okay, well, there's that more than one Yonatan in the Torah. More than one Gershom? I don't believe so. Gershom is the firstborn son of. But if you look at the word Menashe, the Nun is, is small. Why? Because Chazal tell us that really who is this? It's Moshe Rabbeinu. Could you believe that the grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu is the one that what? Builds this house, idolatry. So long as the house of God was in Shiloh, this was also existing at the same time. What, what's going on here? What are we supposed to understand? So Rabbi Hatton says something beautiful. He says the truth is that great men and even the greatest men come and go. The children and their grandchildren remain behind to make their own moral and religious choices. My father, my grandfather could be the most righteous person on planet Earth. There is no guarantee that I will also. It's not money in the bank. And on the flip side, a person's parents could be wicked. You're not bound by who your parents are. It's a decision to make. Yehonatan, the son of Gershon, the son of Moshe, makes the decision. And his decision is to abandon the way of his father and the way of his grandfather and to go a different path. Now, if you take a look at the chart to the right of the screen, you'll see, Moshe's father. He lived there. There is a lot of similar language. And let's not forget, Rashi's pointing out those three other similar uh, language pieces earlier on in our story. Okay, what, what's going on here? How, how, how did this work? How could it be? Moshe Shamar Bekanut al Nikiyato, that's Muto. Moshe Rabbeinu took care of his cleanliness spiritually, physically, I'm sure, as well. 
and his independence. He wasn't interested in getting help from anyone else. He does not become wealthy through the hands of man, but through the hands of God. Everybody else is collecting the Biza Tayam. And what does he do? He's getting a mitzvah. He's finding Yosef. Yonatan emulates the independence. He doesn't want to be dependent on it. He doesn't take food for free from Micha, but he earns his keep. His independence. He wanted honor. He wanted fortune. In the end, he ends up being Meshabed, not only himself, but his people. And he does that not only physically, but spiritually as well. What inspired Yonatan to do this? Is it just that he wanted stuff? There are people like that. People that even though they come from religious homes and they're great families, they have this lust for power or this lust for money, and it makes it impossible for them to reconcile living on that path of Torah mitzvot because they feel detracted. So they go unethical, stealing here and there, whatever it takes, and they become powerful, wealthy people. Is that what happened? So I saw an interesting idea by Rav Yigal Ariel, which is that perhaps he emulated one moment in his grandfather's life. What was his grandfather's moment that he emulated? He goes out to Yitro, Moshe that is, and he stays there. And while he's staying there, he's cut off from Am Yisrael, and he's really not so much connected to God. That is exactly what Micha says. Micha says, I emulate that moment. Sorry, yet Yonatan, the grandson of Moshe says, that's the Moshe Rabbeinu that I want to hang up on my wall. That's who I want to be. The parak is once again, as we conclude episode one, Pesel Micha and the people of Dan, it is so unbelievably depressing to see where the Jewish people have fallen once again. They kill innocent people instead of doing the lofty job that they have to do. In addition to that, what do they end up doing? They end up creating a house, a real house of idol worship. Again, I think we find ourselves looking at a story and saying what could have been and what ends up being. We'll pick up next week with the story of Pilegish Begiva for the last three weeks of Sefer Shoftim, which I promised you will make this story look a lot tamer and a lot nicer. We're about to look at probably one of the worst episodes in Jewish history and Tanakh. Have a wonderful week. Thank you again. And please continue walking in the ways of the prophets.